Welcome. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, and this is another important episode of The New World Next Week. NewWorldNextWeek.com is where you can find the audio, video, and sources for all of these episodes, and it is always very important. James, what a strange way to start a, an episode, and this is episode 185 of New World Next Week. I think I, Monday night on Skype, I just kind of hit you up and said, hey, dude, where's the plane? Little did we know that two, three more days later, we'd still all be asking each other, where's the plane? So this is the mystery of the missing Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. And I wasn't going to mention this, but you may as well. I'm just going to give the breakdown from Wikipedia because it's as true and as factual as anything else we know about this bizarre case so that later when folks watch this video – Years down the road, they can see what, what we were talking about. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 was a scheduled passenger flight from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia to Beijing, China. On Saturday, March 8, 2014, the 777 disappeared with 227 passengers of 15 nationalities plus 12 crew members on board following its last contact with air traffic control less than an hour after takeoff which has been now recently reported the last words from the pilot were allegedly, all right, good night. A joint search and rescue effort covering an area of 27,000 square miles or 70,000 kilometers in the Strait of Malacca and the South China Sea, conducted by at least 12 countries. The search area continues to expand and searchers begin to even look for evidence on land. Two passengers who boarded the aircraft using stolen passports initially raised concerns of a terror plot. Malaysian police identified both passengers and said they were unlikely to be terrorists. Communication between official representatives of many organizations and the public regarding the loss of the flight has been imprecise, incomplete, and sometimes inaccurate, and there are doubts concerning the aircraft's possible location and trajectory. On March 12th, that was... Now, yesterday, as you're watching this, Wednesday, Chinese authorities announced that one of their satellites had observed large floating debris at sea northeast of Kuala Lumpur and on the intended flight track. James, the most recent bit of breaking news in this obviously developing now six days on story, the, now they're wondering if the plane flew for at least four hours after no contact. So... The theories go wild, and this is perfect fodder for endless, endless speculation. Was it terror? Was it error? Did a meteor hit it? I couldn't help but think when they showed these suspects' photos, they look like the Tsarnaev brothers from the Boston bombing from last year. The pilot has let people into the cockpit for fun before. The phones are still allegedly ringing. And thanks to our man on Twitter, at G.J. Salisbury, we'll give you the guide to the missing Malaysia airline plane conspiracy theories. James? Well, it is just a bizarre mystery at this point, and we really don't have a lot of facts to go on. But it is there are at least a couple of points that I find interesting in this. One is the fact that this is being used as an opportunity to comment negatively on the government in Malaysia, and it's a uh, and now there's all sorts of questions being raised about what the government knew and what information they were and weren't sharing and when they shared it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's that's interesting in and of itself because the demonization of the Malaysian government is part of a I think a 
larger uh, strategy that also involves, of course, the smearing of the former prime minister, uh, Dr. Mahathir Mohammed, who invited people like myself out uh, a couple of years ago to talk about 9-11 truth. Um, so that's obviously something that uh, that is a touchy point geopolitically in all of this. But uh, the other interesting point is just that one of the speculations, one of the things that, I, I mean, we don't know anything, so we can't really say, but one speculation that's been bandied about has been related to a very interesting FAA release in the Federal Register from last November to do with specifically the type of mo- the model of uh, Boeing that was uh, that was in question here, the 777-200. Um, from federalregister.gov, uh, quote, the integrated network con- configurations in the Boeing model 777-200, 300, and 300ER series airplanes may enable increased connectivity with external network sources and will have more interconnected networks and systems such as passenger entertainment and information services than previous airline mo- airplane models. The existing regulations and guidance material did not anticipate these systems, these types of system architectures. Furthermore, 14 CFR regulations and current system safety assessment policy and techniques do not address potential security vulnerabilities which could be exploited by unauthorized access to airplane networks and servers. And quote, long story short, some people are speculating, does this mean Boeing knew about a uh, vulnerability that would allow this precise model of airplane to be uh, uh, to be taken over remotely um, does this play into what's what happened and why this plane was apparently wildly off course in it, the last time it was known and that of course brings up uh, at the very least it brings up the specters of the, the possibility of the remote controlled airplanes on 9-11 which I've talked to 9-11 researcher Aidan Monaghan uh, about a couple of times on the Corbett Report so people can look into the archives for that and also brings up the question of people like Dov Zakheim who before he became the undersecretary Secretary of Defense in Rumsfeld's Pentagon and the comptroller who oversaw the missing trillions, he was working at a, a company called uh, SPC, Systems Planning Corporation, Inc., a subsidiary of System Planning Corporation, which did, among other things, uh, provide uh, software for controlling drones uh, and also destroying them um, in the in military exercises. Um, and Zakheim also oversaw a system that, uh, that saw 767s being transferred to to, uh, Air Force bases as part of a Boeing Pentagon deal. So uh, again, all of this leads into a vast network of interesting connections to, to the 9-11 and, and uh, what happened there. So I'll throw some of those notes into the show notes. And uh, again, all we have at this point is speculation. So I don't think we have a lot to go on um, at this point other than, than uh, what we what we have uh, laid out so far. Well, and I'm glad you, you got into 9-11 because that's in a way, ex- exactly what it brings up. I find it really fascinating on just an esoteric level that as the days went on, of course, more and more theories started to pop out. We had more time to think of them. I swear in the last 24 hours, people started to fixate on the idea of what if this plane comes back as a weapon? What if they've repurposed it? And just as I feel like that was in the zeitgeist, two buildings blow up in Manhattan, which is bizarre coincidence. And we also see... Like we mentioned last week in the Osama trial of the the nephew and the shoe bombers, we also now have the CIA feud with the Senate panel putting the post-9-11 lack of accountability back in the spotlight. So again, it's kind of reminding everyone of the never-ending specter of 9-11. So James, hopefully there will be some answers to this story and hopefully very soon. Now, having said that, we'll move to our second story this week, which is a fascinating one and a long story. And as always, we'll always employ you to go check out these stories yourself. We're giving you the the breakdown that you can digest it. We want you to go read these stories fully for yourself. 
Fascinating story via the New York Times and posted to myownfoodworldorder.com. After a big bet, hedge fund pulls the levers of power, staking a billion dollars that Herbalife will fail and then lobbying to bring it down. At a midtown Manhattan steakhouse last June, William A. Ackman, the activist hedge fund manager who had bet a billion dollars on the collapse of a nutritional supplement company, Herbalife, offered his latest evidence to a handful of other hedge fund managers about why the company's stock could soon plummet. He told his companions that Representative Sanchez, Democrat out of California, had sent a letter to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, calling for an investigation of Herbalife. The commission had not yet stamped the letter as received, nor had it been made public, but Mr. Ackman, who had personally lobbied Sanchez and stood to profit if the company's stock dropped as a result of the call for an inquiry, already knew what it said and read the letter to his buddies from his cell phone. When the office ultimately released it, they backdated it to the day before dude was telling all his bankster buddies about it. The letter was a small hint of Mr. Ackman's extraordinary attempt to leverage the corridors of power in Washington, state capitals, and city halls for his hedge fund's profit after taking a billion-dollar financial position called a short, a bet that will pay off only if Herbalife's stock drops. Corporate money is forever finding new ways to influence government, but Mr. Ackman's campaign to take this fight to the end of the earth using every weapon in the arsenal that Washington offers in an attempt to bring ruin to one company is a novel one, fusing the financial markets with the political system. Others have criticized the business practices of Herbalife, a company that sells vitamins and other health supplements through independent distributors, many of whom are lower-income Latinos or African-Americans. But Mr. Ackman's attack is unprecedented in its scale, and Herbalife officials strongly deny his accusations that the company is a pyramid scheme that stays afloat by constantly recruiting new distributors. In closing, James, and again, it's, it's a long, fascinating story. To pressure state and federal regulators to investigate Herbalife, an act that alone would cause the stock to dive, his team has helped organize protests, news conferences, and letter-writing campaigns in California, Nevada, Connecticut, New York, and Illinois, although several of the people who signed the letters to state and federal officials say they don't remember sending them. This all according to a New York Times investigation. James, this is really a fascinating story, which still connects to the specter of 9-11 with shorts. That's exactly what I was going to say. In fact, just as you were reading that, it really occurred to me that this is just another form of that, what we've seen before. And again, for people who don't know about the put options on 9-11, there's a lot of work that I've done on that in the past. So I hope you'll look into it. But yes, the ability to bet on a a company going down um, gives all sorts of not only opportunities, but incentives for people with a lot of money and power to make that company go down. And that can be done in a very spectacular fashion as on 9-11 or in just an insidious fashion like what we're seeing with Herbalife. And I'm glad you found this story because this one, I, I didn't see this one at all when it uh, when it came out in the newswires. And to me, this is absolutely the heart of the, the core of the corruption of the fascist state and exactly why it must be opposed vociferously, why why it is so insidious, this, this co- corporate government nexus. Because again, if the rich and powerful people in positions to bet billions of dollars on this or that company going down can then spend billions of dollars to make it happen in order to make even more billions of dollars, where does that leave the average person with the average mom and pop type business operation? It obviously means that the money 
money will continue to accrue in fewer and fewer hands of the uh, connected insiders and uh, and their cronies. And that's exactly what is happening. The wealth inequality continues to to raise in America, which and, and all around the world, but specifically, I think most most obviously in America. And it's precisely because of this corporate governmental fasci- fascistic nexus. And that's why we have to argue as strenuously and as often as possible and as loudly as possible for the separation of business and state at the very least. And of course, I would argue for the elimination of the state altogether. But at any rate, the separation of business and state. And on that note, people might want to check into my recent interview with Ryan Dawson about that, uh, the ebook that he's penned, The Separation of Business and State, which is, I think, really the core of, of the problem that we're dealing with and, and be brilliantly exposed by just a story like this, where, where there isn't even anything so untoward going on. It's just the usual kind of crony uh, uh, conspiracy that we often see, but it really does. It can completely level companies and completely make people's fortunes based solely on their connections to the, uh, the inside the beltway. James, let's now quickly move to our third and final story this week for the celebrity update you've all been waiting for. Between Two Ferns boosts traffic to Obamacare website. President Barack Obama, Barry Satoro, and his decision to appear on comedian actor Zach Galifianakis' web series Between Two Ferns drawing fire, of course, from conservatives. But it might be just what the doctor ordered for the American Health Care Act, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Less than three weeks before the 2014 registration window for coverage under Obamacare closes and the decision to shoot the video is stark evidence of the Obama administration's willingness to pull out all the stops in order to lift the percentage of young adults who've signed up for health care insurance under the law. James, I find this is another kind of fascinating move from the sort of campaigner in chief, the only you know, presidential candidate who actually had maybe a, a, a specific logo and was sold Madison Avenue style. I think an interesting connection to this, James, folks probably missed it, but there was an author who just passed away this last week named Joe McGinnis. He wrote a book called The Selling of the President in 1968 when an ad man told him that he was leaving to go work for Hubert Humphrey's campaign back in 1968. And this guy was like, oh, really? Presidential campaigns have advertisers? And they do, and they did, and he kind of wrote the story. So I find the selling of the president continues on, James. It certainly does, and it's... Uh, look, I don't say this as a humorless person. I like Zach Galifianakis' mm-hmm. stand-up. I, I find it hilarious, and there are some of the Between Two Ferns in that series. I think they're quite funny, but this one, honestly, I didn't laugh at. Honestly, it made me throw up in my mouth a little bit, um, as much as they tried to make light of the situation and everything. But the little coy little joke about, uh, oh, no one wants to look at your text messages in the U.S. government, Zach, kind of uh, joke about uh, NSA spying and all of this, uh, just really rankled me in the wrong way. It rustled my jimmies, as the youngins say on the internet. And uh, and uh, again, I, I, I mean... I, Again, I, I wish the state didn't exist. I, I don't believe in presidents and uh, and the reification of these um, individuals who are no better than you or me. But uh, but even having said that, um, for anyone who's still in that uh, matrix of statism, uh, how can this not be the nadir of the complete um, just trashing of the office of the, the president, the, the most powerful man in the world, who of course is really just a puppet, but still the most powerful man in the world, as, as he likes to be called, appearing on, on little 
comedy skits like this. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. And I I was for one was one who saw this coming when it was uh, the, the president's going on late night talk shows and the like. But now it's it's reached an even lower form of entertainment at this point. So I guess there's uh, no no low that uh, that the president won't go to to try to pimp his propaganda. As uh, a couple of related tie-ins, bringing it all the way back home, despite expensive ads, cover Oregon worst at enrolling young. That would be the Oregon Healthcare Exchange that was set up that now the Oregon General Accounting Office has said they're going to look into it. Actually, no, it's the, it's the feds. The feds are going to look into our shady hundreds of millions of dollars, $300 million in Oregon taxpayer dollars spent on this cover Oregon exchange and ad campaign which featured great Oregon artists which is probably the best thing to come out of this is that it got some good Portland musicians on TV but other than that James I find the interesting note is that just 18% of people between the ages of 18 to 34 in Oregon have enrolled in Obamacare tied with my home state of West Virginia with the worst level of youth participation which I'm not sure exactly what that connection may or may not be and we'll have to save that for another time and James, just in closing, we, of course, always want to mention hashtag New World Next Week for folks out there to submit story ideas, such as other ones that we didn't cover this week from Light Viper, where the NSA wants to spy on itself, or at Ophelia PG, as the slain Mexican cartel leader dies a second time, which is something classic that happens to all our favorite and feared Terranoia leaders. And the other last thing I'll mention, James, I'm working behind the scenes on having a new RSS feed exclusively for New World Next Week videos. We are all looking forward to that with bated breath. And I think the connection between uh, Oregon and West Virginia when it comes to Obamacare youth participation rates is obvious. It is you. You are a bad influence on the youth there, James. So please keep it up. Um, All right. Awesome. Let's wrap it up there and I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks so much, man.